Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. Welcome, sisters and brothers, neighbors and friends and visitors, the blessed and the damned. Good evening, and maybe we ought to say good riddance. Because we are at the end of a very weird decade. We made it, I guess. Those of us still here, anyway. An ultimately beautiful decade, because it's the only decade we've all had in these past ten years. And what a good time. What an ideal time to burn the sins of the past. And burn those who encourage those sins. The ritual we take part in tonight in this form comes from Guatemala, Central America, where the devil is strongly involved in daily life and where they give the devil his due. Now you might be thinking, well, Cama del Diablo is very much a Catholic cultural thing, a Christian thing. Now what do I, a common desert heathen, know of such things? Well, guess what? Heathens have devils too. Devils don't belong to a religion. Devils and demons are not picky. They are not picky about who they vex. If a demonic spirit can mess up somebody's life in some way or another, needlessly complicate things, take the joy out of living, they will do it and they don't care if you're Muslim, atheist, Jewish, agnostic, Unitarian, Hindu, Buddhist, Wiccan, Mormon. They don't even care if you claim to be a Satanist. It's just more material for the demons to work with. Demons vex Joan of Arc and the Buddha and Jesus of Galilee and Ramses the Pharaoh. Demons bothered Led Zeppelin and they bothered Billy Graham too. They're living people. Especially some of the people you see on the TV, on the news. They get inside bad people and make those people worse. They get inside rotten people and make them crazy on top of being rotten. And the thing about a crazy rotten person is the guardrails are off. Now they'll do anything. Why not? The devil said it's the thing to do. Here's how it happened. As far as we know... 
tens of thousands of years ago in the beginning of our current civilization, people started realizing that some sort of natural force, often invisible, seemed to be at work in certain places. Places with spiritual power. Old circles of oak trees. Later, circles of stone, sacred springs, secret caves, mountaintops. And you bet the desert wilderness, the haunted desert wilderness. And somewhere along the way, an early science was developed. An early method of controlling one's environment. People got the idea that the mostly invisible forces, these entities of light and darkness... We got the idea they took satisfaction from our burnt offerings to the gods. We couldn't really believe in the gods, so we quit sacrificing things to them. Yeah, there he goes. And then eventually somebody got the bright idea that why don't we sacrifice the devil? Why don't we sacrifice a big red devil in yellow underwear? No longer would we waste good animals on bad devils. Take whatever trash we had around, old newspapers, old stale flour that the ants have gotten into. And we'd wrap up all the old paper trash in the newspaper and glue it together. And every devil would be made more ridiculous than the last. They'd have clown faces. and then they just have to go off into the ether, into the psychic jet stream and find some new suckers. Find some other people who will believe in them. Oh, 
You know, I've been going over my solstice list and my Hanukkah list and my Christmas list. And pretty much everybody's actually on the solstice list because you don't have to leave anybody out. Nobody can complain about the solstice. It's simply the time when one season turns to another. We go from the shortest day of the year to the sunlight returning. And that has really just inspired all kinds of religion and other trouble over the years. But it's important to us, I suppose. There is a Christmas cliché about evergreen trees and snow on the lawn and ice skating and everything else. And for a lot of us who really grew up out here in the Southwest, it seems a little bit bogus and it seems like they're really trying to push something that is not our experience of the winter holidays. So I thought we'd get our friend Jason P. Woodbury on the phone from... Zia Records and Phoenix and that has been his entire Christmas experience, the desert winter holidays and because Jason is from Zia Records and Aquarium Drunkard, the podcast and the website I figured he might know some backstory about all this Christmas stuff all the snowy white Christmas stuff, and what, if anything, it might have to do with our desert. Jason, welcome back to Desert Oracle Radio. Hey, Ken, it's always great to uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've got a, I've got I've got an investigation for you here for this episode. This is this installment of the uh, the Woodbury Files. Well, that's good. Let's open the files. Well, so everybody knows, as you said, that that a lot of our Christmas songs, a lot of the Christmas canon, uh, revolves around you know giant mounds of snow and snowmen and icicles hanging from you know the the eaves and all that stuff. But if you grew up in the Southwest like I did, um, I think I don't think I've ever experienced a white Christmas. If I'm looking back on it it gets a little bit uh foggy occasionally sometimes it rains and it might get a little bit slippery out but but it never really snows here in my particular part of arizona so i was surprised that um one of the most famous christmas songs concerning um the snow the song white christmas uh actually has its origins in uh in the desert and it's either its roots are either in my part of the desert or your part of the desert, Ken. So there's some there's some disagreement there. But uh, I figured we'd dive into the mysterious case of White Christmas and how it was written someplace where uh, White Christmas almost never occurs. So White Christmas, we all know this song, even if we maybe don't want to know the song. I think it's a, a fine American standard. Dreaming of a White Christmas, etc., so the song White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin. This is the part that is not in dispute whatsoever. Irving Berlin, the legendary songwriter who wrote a lot of key songs from the great American songbook. He did Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. He did God Bless America. Um, and anyway, in the late 30s or 40s, he was hanging out in the desert. So accounts vary at this point. He was maybe hanging out at the La Quinta Hotel in La Quinta, California, which is not far from you, right? Just a just a just a, a quick uh, a quick jaunt over to La Quinta. Right, it's part of the Palm Springs area. 
and lots of fancy houses and a very fancy golf club up there. Right. So that's a place that Frank Capra used to hang out a whole bunch when he wanted to get away from L.A. He'd stay in this little casita there. And anecdotally, people say that that's where he wrote It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas, the Christmas movie classic. Um, really? So we have, we have It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas, maybe both, from La Quinta. That's right. So uh, it must have had some weird Christmas magic working for it because apparently that's where Irving Berlin sat down for one of his famous all-nighter writing sessions. He'd stay up all night, um, probably, you know, drinking coffee and and writing songs. Uh, And apparently that's where he wrote White Christmas, according to one account of that song's origin. So the other account, however, has him over in Arizona at the Arizona Biltmore. So the Biltmore was opened in 1929, and it was also a hangout of very notable types. Clark Gable used to hang out there. Apparently, the pool, the Catalina pool, was Marilyn Monroe's favorite pool. So according to local legends here in Phoenix, Irving Berlin sat down poolside in the Arizona sunshine and wrote, white christmas so either way if it was out in the palm springs area or if it was here in phoenix he wrote white christmas uh in a place where uh white christmases are pretty rare if uh if they ever occur and both of these places cater especially to wealthy people and the entertainment business who did not want to be in the cold or the snow at all for the holidays That's right. That's right. So Irving Berlin, at either one of these two desert locales, stayed up and and wrote this song, White Christmas, which, of course, talks about the treetops glistening with snow and sleigh bells and all of these uh, very snow, all this very snowy imagery is is captured here. But according to uh, some of the original lyrics, it might not have been quite as... Uh, snow focused uh, it talked about the sun shining and the grass being green and orange and palm trees swaying so it it seems that really when you when you think about it the the whole notion of dreaming of a white Christmas can really only happen if you're in a place where that's not your everyday reality so it, it made a lot more sense to me than I first you know first thought that the song would have something to do with the desert versus, you know, these these snowy fields and and all of the all the stuff that it's often associated with. W- one of the things that's that's not in dispute is that apparently uh, as he finished writing the song, he called up his secretary in New York, which no doubt was blanketed by snow, and uh, and said, "Grab your pen and take down this song. I just wrote the best song I've ever written." And then of course, he had to raise the stakes and said that he wrote the best song that anybody's ever written. And it certainly has been one of the most recorded, most broadcast, most performed songs of any genre in American history. That's right. So when it was eventually recorded in 1941, it was sung by Bing Crosby. And Bing Crosby used to broadcast his show during the war from sunny Palm Springs, California. So while the song, you know, seems to it's become a standard all around the country and all around the world, it really did sort of live early on in in the desert. And uh, and it's opened itself up. It's one of those songs that there are so many versions of it. 
And I know that some people don't love this song, but I think that if you listen to like the Darlene Love take from the the Phil Spector A Christmas Gift for You record or if you listen to Otis Redding, you know, there's all these these great versions of the song. Um I think my one of my recent favorites is by the guitarist Bill Orcutt who sort of deconstructs it. And so that's the cool thing about a standard is that eventually the song sort of uh becomes a real platform for the artist to do something unique or or interesting or original with it so while it started in the desert um it seems like it belongs to everybody at this point so this is kind of interesting the original lyrics reflect the songwriter's location as he's thinking about the holidays to come and his location is a desert resort whether it's outside of palm springs or in Arizona at the Biltmore he's by choice in really the finest place to be in the winter which is the desert yeah that's and right by, and so he takes out that personal background that personal location and then it's no longer about a wealthy famous songwriter lounging by a pool calling his secretary and saying, you know, let's let's start printing money with this one. Instead, it makes it so that the person could be anywhere. And Bing Crosby's version comes out, if I'm not wrong, at the beginning of America's involvement in World War II. Yeah, and as you might imagine, that... Um that lyric, the, the, the focus and, and the longing that's really inherent into the song, you know, wishing you were someplace else, it totally resonated with the GIs, you know? I mean, as it, as it would, these guys are off in a foreign land fighting, uh, fighting a war, and, and, you know, at Christmas time, I'm sure that that was, you know, uh, it was terrible at all times, but at Christmas time, I, I can imagine it feeling especially lonesome. And uh, and the song, yeah, absolutely became a huge hit with anybody who isn't where they want to be at the holidays. And I think that, in a really funny way, that kind of cast the net wide enough that everybody can get caught up in the song in one way or another, you know? And that's what makes a standard. A standard is something that you can put yourself into regardless of your age or background or culture or whatever. It's kind of an open role that you put yourself in. And if it's a holiday standard, it generates this almost immediate feeling of nostalgic longing which some people find gross and too much, but most people get something out of it. There's something about it. So there have been other famous Christmas songs written by desert desert people, desert residents, people who sometimes are in the desert. One I'm thinking of in particular was by Gene Autry, one of the founders of Pioneer Town up here outside Joshua Tree. And Gene Autry cut this song... Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is kind of a dopey kind of Western cowboy, semi-Western swing ballad song. And that became his biggest thing. That's about all anybody knows about Gene Autry anymore, if they even realize he sang it. Yeah, I don't even know. I, I, I certainly am familiar with the song, but I didn't realize that one had roots in the desert, too. You know, another uh, another desert Christmas standard, yeah. 
And we have a lot of entertainment people out here. They like to come out here for the holidays. I remember seeing Dean Martin's Christmas in California special, maybe in the 70s or 80s. And there was at least one that was either at kind of a poolside Palm Springs cabana with a bar set up and a palapa and everything. Or it was a set behind the studio in Burbank where they were shooting it. Right. But it gave kind of a rat pack sort of glamour to some of these things. And for me, at least, because I didn't grow up in the 40s, but growing up in the 70s and not being in California, it really did look like that's where everything fun was happening for the holidays, you know, New Orleans, where I was, all we had was a little sleet. Right, right. Yeah, snow is pretty rare. I, in all my Christmases in, in Arizona, I've never experienced it. Um, I, I think maybe there's been snow on the ground once or twice in my whole life uh, here in Phoenix. Uh, certainly uh, more northern parts of the, the city will sometimes get a little bit of snow. But I wonder how often, how often, if ever, have you experienced snow out there in, in your neck of the desert, uh, Ken? Well, here's the thing. In the Mojave High Desert, snow is a regular part of the year. You don't get it every year. Snow is rare in the low desert. It's rare down in the Coachella Valley, Palm Springs, La Quinta. It's rare in Phoenix and Tucson. It's certainly rare in a place like El Paso. But in the Mojave High Desert, You need a little snow for the indicator species, which is the Joshua tree. Joshua trees do best, grow biggest, grow the most dense in places that get a couple of snows a year, a little bit of snow that sticks on the ground. And so on Thanksgiving, it snowed all day in Yucca Valley, which was incredible. I had not seen that much snow on the ground up here probably in five years, so... It's rare to get enough that sticks on the ground that is still there the next day. But when you come to the desert, especially the high desert in wintertime, you ought to be prepared. There were some very cold and sad campers in all of our packful campgrounds that week. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I, I think I've only experienced snow out there once. Um, I was, it was when, I think, let, let me, if I, if I figure this, I think it was 2007, and I was in a band that did a tour uh, from Phoenix up to Seattle. I guess tour might have, might be overstating what we did. We played a few shows in cities all along the West Coast. Um, uh, there was probably more time separating the individual shows than there should have been. But, um... We, we were driving back from Seattle, and bizarrely enough, in that we, we just drove for like 24 straight hours, um, the three of us hanging out, and uh, we caught snow driving through Palm Springs, the whole Desert Hot Springs area on the I-10, and I remember all of us being very, very freaked out by that, and then seeing snow as we passed the, Josh- the exit to the Joshua Tree National you know, forests and all that stuff. It was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty weird thing. So I guess it, 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 it really does add something to the desert in the rare instance that you see it. It's kind of a strange, a strange feeling. It, it is. And this time of year, if you're in the right place, you can see our two snow-covered mountains 
the one that's closest to us here in Joshua Tree is San Gorgonio. Oh, right, and right. So that sort of looms over Yucca Valley, and you can see it from North Joshua Tree, and it's just this big, solid mountaintop, sort of a three-humped camel. And this time of year, if you're lucky enough to get some precipitation at all, it's just like our own Christmas ornament over the whole area. So it's very nice to see. And you hear people talking a lot about what it means for the weather for the rest of the year based on how long that snow lasts on Gorgonio. So if there's still snow in June on Gorgonio, you kind of hope you're going to have a milder summer. So it's it's possible that uh, that in his comings and goings uh, through your your part of the desert, uh, Irving Berlin might even have uh, seen a snow capped mountain. Which who knows? Maybe that's stuck in his his imagination as he sat oh, down I'm to sure. write his classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, Palm Springs, the mountain that looms over Palm Springs and Palm Desert, the one that the tramway goes up to, that one gets snow every year, and sometimes it sticks until the spring as well. So. Maybe he was just kind of looking left over his martini and looking up at the mountain over Palm Springs. Who knows? That's that's certainly the way I like to imagine it, uh, if it didn't happen out here in, in Arizona uh, at the, uh, the Biltmore. I don't know. Well, we'll take either one. We'll, we'll, we'll take it for the desert, for the culture of the desert. Jason, you're going to come back in a couple of weeks, and you've got something that... I'm personally interested in as you are. Tell us a little bit about what's coming up. Well, next time I I check in, Ken, we're going to talk about Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter and the Grateful Dead songs that he penned uh, here in in the desert of Arizona, maybe in a cave and likely on LSD. So something to look forward to. Maybe in a cave and likely on LSD. It sounds like something out of Greek mythology. Well, Jason, thank you for joining us. I hope you have a Merry Christmas and Happy Solstice, New Year's, and we'll talk to you early in the new year. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ken. and across the great Mojave wilderness. This has been Desert Oracle Radio on the night before solstice. We broadcast Friday nights from KCDZ 107.7 FM in Joshua Tree. Everywhere on the internet, get our podcast. Thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver for providing our soundscapes. Not whatever this is. I'm your host, Ken Lane, and I'm doing Campfire Stories at the Ace Hotel December 26th and January 2nd. Come by. I hope you have a good holiday season. I hope you do the stuff that makes you feel all right. Thanks for listening, and good night from the Voice of the Desert.